0: Enough is enough. Enough is enough. How many times have we heard that said or said it ourselves? Conditions at our work site, concerns about our children's school experience, perhaps the prevailing weather pattern. It definitely fits with El Paso and Dayton. Isaiah says it in so many words in chapter 1 because he's in this pastoral prophecy mode demonstrating on the one hand spiritual care and guidance of a community of God's people and the other hand he is sharing prophecy as the telling of God's will and the way God wants things done and the purpose for his people. And he begins in so many words by saying enough is enough. A little bit of context would help, right? Isaiah's ministry, calling in Judea and Jerusalem, covers the rule of four kings. We have to ask, what was going on in those days that he would say these things, as we heard from Naomi? The first king is Uzziah. We read these details from 2 Corinthians 26, and I quote... And his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped by God until he became strong. But when he had become strong, he grew proud to his own destruction, for he was false to the Lord his God. His son Jotham succeeds him. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done but the people still followed corrupt practices. We come to Ahaz. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his ancestor David had done. He even made cast images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and made his sons pass through the fire according to the abominable practices of the nations whom the Lord had drove out of the land. He sacrificed and made offerings on high places, on the hills, under every green tree. And furthermore, Ahaz plundered the house of the Lord and the houses of the king and the officials and gave tribute to the king of Assyria. But it did not help him. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him and said, Because of the gods of the kings of Aram, I'm going to sacrifice to them, so they're going to help me too. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And finally we come to King Hezekiah. Good King Hezekiah is known for restoring, restoring temple worship. He brought back the burnt offerings and the sin offerings. He did this throughout all Judea. He did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord. And every work he undertook to seek his God, he did with all his heart. But Hezekiah did not respond according to the benefit done to him. For his heart was also proud. Assyria was knocking on the doors of Jerusalem, having destroyed several of the surrounding cities, Lachish and others. And when the Assyrians mysteriously retreated to his own territory, he became proud. And Isaiah writes, your land is desolate. This is the verses we did not read. Your city is burned. Your nation is like a defenseless booth in the vineyard or a shelter in a cucumber field. I doubt very much shelter from an invading army in a cucumber field's booth. And Isaiah says, you people are less disobedient than animals are to their masters. And he says, that is Isaiah, he says with pointed words, enough is enough. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. I've had enough of burnt offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. I can't endure solemn assemblies with Your behavior, your new moons, and your appointed festival, my soul hates them. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. In other words, you cling to your religious rituals with no hands and feet like a body that cannot move. These are my words. I believe, in short, Isaiah is describing not only false worship but false religion. Rituals without right living, offerings without follow-up, worship without meeting human needs. And then he gives the final blow, Isaiah does, to, to the people. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Enough is enough. Wow. Those are harsh words, aren't they? And yet, these worship rituals are rooted in the exodus of the Hebrew people having been saved from the pharaohs. They were established so people with faith would never forget their deliverance. And now, they are being chastised for keeping them. So now Isaiah turns and speaks a little more softly and tenderly as he gives a pile of imperatives. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. This is what is missing in their worship and religion. Because as Isaiah speaks for the Lord, without these, your solemn assemblies are offensive to me. They turn me off. And I believe the issue is here is not so much about the rituals, but the, the role of worship. The role of sacrifice. The role of ceremony. The role of religion. Can you say that too, I believe? The role, what is the role of religion? If they don't lead to a deeper understanding of who God is, and what God wants us to be, and who God wants us to be, and how God wants us to be, and live, and respond to the words of Matthew 25, it's simply false religion. I read recently a comment about civil rights versus civil obligations i so wish i knew who wrote it or said it but it was long before i was thinking about this the comment is we need more than civil rights we need civil obligations so civil rights the power says that we can do this or that the power say we can do this we can all have the right to do these things but what about civil obligations these, these words, obli- this word obligation refers to action, refers to urgent action needed. Civil obligations are what we are committed to do. When we think of religious obligations, they are rooted in God's endless love. It's all through the Bible. And when we grasp just how much we are loved, we naturally want to join up with God's agenda with true worship, true religion, accompanied by using our hands and our feet. Alan Watts put it this way. Until people have had some inner spiritual experience, there's no point in asking them to follow ethically the ideas of Jesus or to really understand religious beliefs beyond the level of formula or check off the boxes. At most, such moral ideals and doctrinal affirmations are only a source of deeper anxiety because we don't have the power to follow any of Jesus' major teachings about forgiveness, love of enemies, nonviolence, humble use of power, a simple lifestyle, and so on, except in and through the radical union with God and ourselves. Howard Thurman said the same thing many decades ago. He was in his heyday of ministry in the 30s and through the 50s. And he has this to say. I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I heard a sermon on the meaning of religion or Christianity to people who stand with their backs against the wall. The poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. What does our religion say to them? The issue is, Thurman continues, what religion offers to meet their own needs. And the search for an answer to this question is perhaps the most important religious quest of modern life. That was 80 years ago, and it's still true today, of course. And the women who led the rally on Thursday afternoon at noontime were saying the very same thing that Thurman said so many decades ago. So, what about us at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church? We prayed a different prayer in community life last week. I perked up. I noticed, not because I didn't like the Lord's Prayer, but it caught my attention. This departure reminds us that true worship or true religion is not about repetitive rituals that make us comfortable. And I wonder, folks, are there other areas of our life together that seem to you to be repetitive and like ritual that becomes stale without hands and feet? Is God saying enough is enough about anything regarding our aspect of congregational life? Because just as Isaiah said to the people of that day, it's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to recite the Lord's Prayer each Sunday or pray at mealtime or bedtime or sing four-part harmony. It's not enough to participate in the second hour or receive the bread and the cup or offer our money. It's not enough for M.C. USA, Mennonite Church USA, to have statements on violence, abortion, immigration, generosity, and on and on. It's not enough to attend the Peace Fest or to go to the Thursday anti-gun violence rally of this week without any follow-up commitment when at the same time innocent people are being killed imprisoned and arrested because they're brown or black because of Jesus because of Jesus not because of our own pride we have religious obligations in which worship is tainted and religion is out of touch if we ignore them So what to do? That's always the question, isn't it? What to do? I ran across a testimony this week from a man named R. Derek Black. He's a former leader in a white hate group, didn't say which one, and he's writing a book called Rising Out of Hatred. Actually, he's collaborating with another person. And he has this to say about white nationalism. First of all, he says the obvious, it's an organized ideological and political movement, but his observation is it's in disarray, the result of concerted attention and collective action directed against them by mass protest, legal challenges, and investigations. He goes on to say violence has never been far or entirely separate from legitimate Public-facing activities of white nationalist, uh, act, nationalist acti- activists. And these move- this movement's ideology calls for the removal of certain groups, of course, from the American population. It should be clear to us that rhetoric toward immigrant communities and communities of color is a threat to those people who are already vulnerable. And yet we have an administration willfully turning away its responsibility to defend all Americans. According to Derek Black, public scrutiny has made a difference. I can't prove this, but you can look up his own blog and so forth. Public scrutiny has not been higher than now in the last decades. The most prominent websites that facilitate white power communities and organizers have had to hop from one server host to another and one domain registrar to another. Payment processors have refused to allow electronic donations. Subsequent college campus events were met with overwhelming protest that often prevented them from taking place at all. And one of the largest white nationalist organizations is now defunct. Nearly every leader responsible for the Charlottesville riot faces legal challenges. As a former organizer, he writes, these concerted efforts were powerful in interfering with organizing efforts of these groups. He's saying they work when people speak up and stand up for what they believe in. And his point is, our words and action make a difference. And Luke 12 helps us make a difference as well. In chapter 12, Luke begins by identifying that root of inaction, fear. He says, Don't fear, little flock, for it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, or in other words, to give you God's ways. God wants to give you the ways of the kingdom, give us the ways of the kingdom. He goes on to say, Make purses for yourselves that don't wear out. Now, purses may think are things we carry our money around in. Of course, they are, but they also stand for other things like our time and priorities. Make purses for yourselves that don't wear out and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And finally, he writes in verse 35 Be dressed for action, be ready to act be ready to speak be like those those wedding attendants at the banquet their lamps lit and ready to respond so i admit following jesus isn't always so glamorous is it it's not always so much fun always it's not always predictable but contemplative women and men over the ages have taught that being Ready for action begins with contemplation of what is, of who God is, and who God wants us to be. It begins with contemplation and moves towards action, what can be, and continues with what I can do in the space in front of me. Being mostly around white people, I don't always know how to respond to the racism that we that's in me, and that's in around us. But one thing I've discovered I can do: I have felt compelled, called whatever you want to call it, to make sure I greet people of color when I meet them on the street. Nice hat. Good day to you. Invariably, I get a response. Where most of the time I just walk past and don't say anything. That's how we do, right? Right past, unless you live in this Midwest, and then everybody says hi to everybody. Not quite, but more so. It's one thing I can do. I don't know what kind of results that's going to bring. But it's what I can do in the space in front of me. I can greet people. And in so doing, I'm acknowledging they're on par with me. They're worthy of being greeted. They're worthy. And so in the words of Isaiah... Echoed in the Gospels, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the poor, plead for the widow. It's a call to practice our religion with hands and feet, of which there is never enough. Amen.